This morning we're continuing with our series, Not by Bread Alone, on the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we, when we pick up the Old Testament, we pick up a story. The story, as we saw in the first week of the series a couple of weeks ago, is an incredibly important story to us as Christians. It's the backstory to Jesus. It's the story that Jesus fulfills. And it's our story in so many ways. We're not external to the story, but we're actors in the middle of the drama that the story is relating that's going on between God and his world. And we have a part to play. And we talked in the first week about our ability to play our part being significantly diminished when we don't understand the beginning of the story. It's like living in act four of a play and not knowing acts one through three. And it's very difficult to remain faithful to the script or to know our part in the midst of it. So when we come to the Old Testament, we come really eager to understand the story even better in order that we might live our part in the story more faithfully in the present day. We're picking up the narrative of Deuteronomy in chapter 4, looking at the whole swath of verses 1 through 40, the climax of Moses' first of three speeches in this book, the first really strong exhortation in the book of Deuteronomy. And and the speech places us on the stage of the drama with two great actors in it, Israel and Yahweh, Israel's God. But we also find, and we'll see in a moment, the nations are present as well in Deuteronomy 4. So as we learn something about these different characters in the play, we'll learn a bit more, I hope, about our own place in the story as well. Now, the heart and the thrust of Deuteronomy chapter 4 of this speech is for Israel to obey Yahweh. And his instruction. It comes out very clearly in the first verse. And now Israel listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. And then in the final verse of the speech. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today. The call to obedience. That remains as much a part of our identity as the people of God. As it was of the people of God back on the plains of Moab. As they were about to enter the promised land. It's actually quite interesting as Moses issues his final words, which is what the book of Deuteronomy is, to the people of God. He calls them to obedience because this isn't just the theme of chapter 4, but it's also the theme of the whole book of Deuteronomy. So also, the greater Moses, Jesus, the greater mediator, the Messiah himself, when he's departing from his people at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, he says to the apostles, I want you to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey All that I have commanded you. So as we look at Deuteronomy 4, we want to unpack this call to obedience a bit further. And I want to do this by asking three questions. First, what is the goal of obedience? Second, uh, why do we obey? Or what is it that motivates our obedience? And then third, what gets in the way? So what's the goal? Why? And then what gets in the way? And I trust as we do this, we'll see some parallels between the people of God then and our own lives and their situation that will encourage us. I mean, my, my encouragement and exhortation this morning is the same as Moses's in Deuteronomy 4, to obey the living God. So what's the goal? The goal of obedience is the well-being and long life of Israel in the land that Yahweh is giving to them. So I didn't read this part, but continuing in verse 1, keep these commandments that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. Or in verse 40, keep these commandments that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Blessing 
from their obedience. It's interesting, when Adam and Eve didn't keep the commands of God, they were ejected from the land, from the garden. And Moses is saying, no, 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 walk in these ways that you might live long and enjoy and flourish in the land. But the goal of obedience goes deeper than this. And this is where I want to look at a little bit more. Um, Beyond Israel's flourishing to verses 6 through 8, where Israel's flourishing because of the presence of God in their midst and because of the law of God that's so beautiful and holy and righteous, leads to the nations observing them and exclaiming in verse 6, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They would be seen as a nation with a God so close to them and a God who speaks so clearly with such beautiful truths and sets up a society of justice and righteousness in such a wonderful way that the nations would look on as observers in this drama and proclaim what a great God, what a great nation this people are. And so this taps into the larger question of why Israel? Because sometimes we struggle with that when we come to the Old Testament. So why did God choose this one people? Isn't that unfair to the nations in some ways? And and it's important to be clear that it's not just so that Israel could have a great life and become the envy of all the nations of the world. That's not the heart of the Old Testament at all. As we read in Genesis 12, Abraham was called in order that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. All the nations of the earth. So in other words, God's call isn't on Israel for Israel's sake, but on Israel for the sake of the world. That Israel would have a mediatorial function. They were called a nation of priests to have this mediatorial function with the nations of the earth. It's not Israel to hoard the one true God's blessings, but it's Israel to be the vehicle through which the one true God's blessings spread to all the nations, to all the peoples. In other words, Israel's election implies a mission of witness and mediation that we see here coming out, granted in in hints and subtleties, nonetheless, there still very clearly. And that witness or that mission then implies or is achieved by a certain ethics. By walking according to these laws, by living under the word of Yahweh, by being his distinct people, they could then fulfill their vocation as being priests to the world, as declaring the glories of this wonderful God and his ways to the world. In a converse way, when Israel fails to walk according to the word, then their purpose in God's mission as a witness to the nations and as a vehicle for blessing to the nations would be frustrated. Now that helps us think a little bit about the nature of our own obedience. Yes, in fact, our obedience leads to blessing in our lives. We teach that to our children all the time. But our obedience demonstrates to the world the uniqueness and the nature of the one true God that we serve. It's interesting, God isn't differentiated, and this is pretty clear in Deuteronomy 4. He's not differentiated by having a different form, a different visible image from the other gods of the nations around him. The second commandment, which Deuteronomy 4 is sort of a riff on for a while, says don't make any other you know, graven images. Don't make any images of this God. And the reason is, is because this God's unique image is impressed or implanted upon human beings and upon this particular people who would then reflect his image to the world through their lives of holiness and righteousness and exclusive worship of this one true God. 
As we read in Matthew 5, Jesus calls this people the light of the world. And he tells us in John 13 that everybody around us, all people will know that you are Christians by your love for one another. By the quality of your life together. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, as we read earlier as well, that you're the chosen people. You are the people of the one true God now. You are the inheritors of the promises. You are the true Israel now. And he tells us then as those people to live such good lives among the pagans that when they see your, even though they malign you, even though they speak against you, when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Our obedience as God's people is to become a light to the world of the beauty and wonder of our King. The early church clearly understood this. One of the critics of early Christianity in the second century was a man named Galen. He was a physician and an all-around genius. And he took up his pen to write against the, the, the new Christian faith. And this is what he said. He said, they, that is the Christians, also number individuals who in self-discipline and self-control in matters of food and drink and in their keen pursuit of justice have attained a pitch that is a way of life not inferior to that of genuine philosophers. A scholar commenting on this of that period says, for it was through their way of life and not simply through their teachings that Christians first caught the attention of larger society. Now Galen's comparing the early church to, to philosophies, philosophers who were, we, don't, we think of philosophers, and some of you are philosophers, in the wrong way. Back then philosophers were much more like proponents of a way of living. It was about living a certain life. And what's interesting is that philosophers were, they had disciples and they would teach them their ways, but they were working with the elite of their day. And yet Galen notices something about the Christian church. And he says, actually, they've attained a way of life that's not inferior to that of our greatest elites, if you will, who are pursuing truth and beauty and, 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 um, and living their life in a very different way. But yet they're doing it with everybody, without discrimination, with the poor with the marginalized, with the slaves and the free, with men and with women. It's a beautiful picture that the early church understood the nature of our life, the nature of our obedience is a witness to the nations. A few centuries later, Julian the apostate, the great Roman emperor who grew up in a Christian home and rejected the faith and became one of its strongest opponents as emperor of Rome, still nonetheless noticed the Christians and said this about them. Why do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well, while everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. Doesn't that encourage you about the witness of our earliest, the earliest members of the Christian church? They were living a life. That others could look on. The nations could say, surely, what a great nation this people is because of the way that they live. Someone in our community who had came to, came to know Jesus a couple of years ago through this community spent first a couple of years living in and among this community at Church of the Cross and just getting to know the people, going to neighborhood group week after week. And he said to me when he was talking about his journey, he said, you know, Mark, I've seen the brilliance, and then he goes, no, the cleverness of Christianity 
And what he meant was, look, I've lived among you for a while and I've seen the way that you live and I've seen the way that you love each other and I've seen what your worship means to you and I've seen the way that it all coheres in a way and it's compelling to me. It's drawn me in. This is, this is what part of what motivates our obedience as God's people is that we could play our part in the story as the people who bear witness through our life. Of course, through our proclamation as well. But through our life, which is its own proclamation of the goodness and wonder of our God. That's what Moses is urging upon the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 4. And obviously that pertains to us today. So why do we obey then? Why do we, what, what is it that motivates um, or what is it that, that moves our obedience? If the goal of it is to, to, to find blessing under God and also to bear witness to him, then what is it that drives this? It's really simple for us as it was for Moses in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. It's the grace of God at work in our lives. It's all that God has done for us. That's what drives us. That's what moves us. This is spelled out in Deuteronomy 4 throughout the passage through two primary events. It's the revelation of Yahweh on the mountain at Sinai, at Horeb, verses 9 through 14. When God comes down in fire and covers the mountain and speaks and the people are terrified because their God has spoken to them. Contrasted, you couldn't see him. The visible is contrasted with the audible in this section of the chapter. The gods of the nations you can see, but they don't speak. The God of Israel you can't see, but he speaks. And not only has he spoken, but the second great event is the rescue from slavery in Egypt. This motivation crescendos throughout the chapter and reaches its loudest point in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you. We're urged to take this great experiment. Since the day that God created man on earth and ask from one end of the heavens to the other. In other words, go all the way back in time and go all the way across the world and see if God has ever, if any God has ever done something as beautiful and wonderful as this. See if any God has ever spoken to a people and they lived out of the fire. See if any God has ever gone into a, a nation, the might of their day, and rescued his people through, through signs and wonders, through his mighty hand and outstretched arm. This is, chapter, this is verses 34 through 35. Has any God ever done this? No, the answer. These are rhetorical questions that Moses is throwing to the people. No God has ever done such a great thing as this. This was amazing and wonderful, and only Yahweh could do this. And so you get verses 35 and 39, this great affirmation that God is the only God, that you might know that the Lord is God there is no other beside him there is no other God who could do something like this that is Moses is saying to the people obey Yahweh walk with him what drives your obedience is not because it's some harsh word that comes down but it's because he loves you it's because he's spoken to you what an amazing gift that the God who created all things has actually spoken to us and not only has he spoken to you but he's also rescued you from slavery now, of course, we know that today we are the people of God who have inherited this story. But God has spoken in a greater way than he spoke on Sinai through the fire and the cloud. He's spoken most of all in these latter days through the person of his son, through the eternal word that he sent to be among us and to declare himself to us in a brilliant way, in a clear way. 
and he dwelt among us. And not only did we live, but we are thriving and we will live forever because of his speaking in this way. And obviously, not only has God rescued the the Israelites from the Egyptians, but a greater rescue has occurred for us. That God has come down and entered into our pain and our mess and taken upon himself our sin and our, our our forgetfulness and our idolatry, and place it upon his own person in his son at the cross, in order that we could be set free, not from Egypt, but from the greater enemy of sin and death and the devil himself, and be free. This all gets picked up in the next chapter, just peeking ahead to next week in the Ten Commandments, but the introduction to the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Walk with me. Obey me because I've rescued you. Because I've given myself to you in a deeper way. And Israel, Moses is saying, you know who this God is because he's spoken. You know what he's done because you've seen it with your own eyes. You know that no other God can do what he has done. And so Moses seems to be asking Israel, and in some some ways we get the same question as, so what are you going to do with such an amazing revelation? How are you going to handle such a privileged place in the world? To the people of this one true God who has rescued you in this amazing way. Will you do your own thing, Israel, or will you follow him? Will his kindness lead you to repentance and obedience? Or will you presume upon his kindness and become like the other nations that are surrounding you and do what you want instead? Will you live as his inheritance and truly that you truly are and walk in his ways? Or will you walk according to your own ways? Which will it be? As we think about our own lives in obedience this morning, I want you to let his grace speak to you. Let his grace warm your heart and encourage you along this path of obedience. Let his grace enable you to walk by faith and and not by sight. Because we've received the greater grace, the greater rescue, the greater revelation. And this and the joy that comes out of this in the lives of God's people is the only thing that can fuel our obedience. Any obedience that, that, that attempts to be motivated by something other, in an ultimate sense, other than the grace of God will ultimately falter. And we know this. We know that if we just go out and try to live the ways of God in the world, we try to live a selfless life, that unless there's, unless there's a burning thing on the inside of our lives, unless there's a deep conviction about the goodness of God and his love for us, that our obedience runs dry. It runs short. It's full of confusion. So Moses, interestingly, doesn't say to Israel, just try harder, try harder, try harder. Instead, he says, let me show you, let me remind you of who God is and of what he's done for you. Let me remind you of just how far he's gone to show himself to you, to communicate his word to you. Think about that, O Israel. Meditate upon that. Sing about that. And you'll be encouraged to keep his commandments and his ways. You'll be able to play your part as his witness in the world to the nations. And it will not be a burden, but it will be a delight. Your great delight. To walk in the ways of your great king. So what gets in the way finally. Of our obedience. And and the chapter says two things primarily. The first one kind of picks up on where we just were. It's forgetting. Forgetting. Uh, An archivist told me a couple weeks ago. That this was her favorite book of the Bible. Because often it says you know don't forget. Don't forget. 
We are forgetful people. Verse 9 and verse 23 say, lest you forget, Moses is saying. And that's the great first barrier to our obedience is we forget who God is and we forget what he's done and we forget what he said. Anybody who's here and who is a parent has heard it a thousand times when your child doesn't obey. I forgot what you said. I forgot, mom or dad. And we're the same way. And so the call that that Moses gives to the people is is to remember, to repeat, to continue to tell the story. And that's what he does in chapter 4. To saturate ourselves with a reminder of God's word and his grace. And to pass this on to the next generation. In verse 9 he says, um, don't forget these things lest they depart from your heart all the days of of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Pass them on to the generations. Which is a peek into chapter 6 where we're urged to keep the law or the instruction or the story of God. And to to write it on our hands and our doorposts and our, 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 um, our gates. And to speak of it with our kids when we wake up and when we lie down and when we go to... Because we know that we're a forgetful people. And we need this reminder again and again that God is good all the time. That God has rescued us from sin and death. That God has won the victory for us as his people. At every level in our lives. You can almost hear the urging of the author of Hebrews saying, Don't neglect meeting together as some have done. Because when you meet together, and that's what we do here week after week on a Sunday, is we retell the story. And that's what we enact visibly in the word at the table, the sacrament of the Eucharist, that God has done a great thing for you. Remember what he's done for you. And be encouraged and motivated through that remembrance to run out and walk with him in your daily life. Recall the story, rehearse the narrative, revere his word. And that's what we do when we gather together. The second great inhibitor of obedience in Deuteronomy 4, not just forgetting, but is idolatry. And that's where the, the center of the chapter goes, is this critique of the idols. Calvin rightly called our hearts idol factories. And all of us are prone to worshiping other gods. Not so much the golden calves of today, but money, sex, and power, or influence, and success, and fame. Maybe these are the golden calves of our day. They're not visible images, but they're things that we give ultimate allegiance to. And as we do so, our allegiance and exclusive attachment to Yahweh... The jealous God, verse 24 says, who demands an exclusive allegiance to him from his people gets diminished as we bow the knee to these other ends and goals of our lives that begin to then distort our obedience, our following, and therefore then diminish our witness as we forgo the way of love and selflessness and pursue a way of selfishness and self-centeredness and ego. Verses 15 through 24 demolish or warn Israel to to not turn to idolatry. And there's a list of idols in verses 16 through 19 that actually invert the order of the the works of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And it says that don't, don't bow down and worship an image of male or female, animals on the earth, birds in the sky, creeping things, fish, the sun, the moon, the stars. That's exactly the opposite order that those things appear in Genesis 1. And there's a clear echo here from Deuteronomy 4 back to Genesis 1. And what Moses is saying is, look, idolatry turns the order of creation upside down. You're supposed to worship God, the only being above you in the order of things. And when you begin to worship these other things, you invert that order and you start to worship the creation. Something made with human hands. This is Paul in Romans 1 all over again. And that leads 
to diminishment in your own life and to a squelching of your witness as the people of God. In light of our tendencies to forget and to make idols, Moses urges us to watch our hearts or to keep ourselves numerous times in this chapter. One thinks of Jesus saying to the disciples, watch and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane that you may not fall or enter into temptation. Or Paul urging the Colossians to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Or Paul saying, if any of you thinks that you stand, when he's recalling Israel's forgetfulness and their their fall in this narrative, he says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Keep yourselves. Watch yourselves. Recognize that your own heart is prone to wander. Prone to forget. And watch it carefully. Our our regular practice in morning and evening prayer and on Sundays in our liturgy to confess our sins is a way of watchfulness. It's a way of taking heed and knowing that we can't stand on our own, that we're guilty, that we need God's cleansing and forgiveness to lead us into a new place week after week, day after day, minute after minute, really. So we are these people. We're the people that Moses is addressing in Deuteronomy 4. We're the ones who are the people of this one true God, not so that we can hoard him, but so that through our lives, through our exclusive worship, through our remembrance, through our walking according to his holy ways and showing to the world a beautiful picture of what human life was meant to be, that we could then be a conduit through, through which those blessings go to the people of this city, the people of our neighborhoods, the people in our workplaces, the people in our families who don't yet know this one true God. That's the call to obey that we get from Deuteronomy 4. I want to finish with one final thing. In verse um, verse 7, the nations in a sense say, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? They knew God's presence had come near, but look at where we are today. God has come so near and dwelt among us. But more than that, at Pentecost, God sent forth his spirit to dwell not just among us, but in us. It's only by his presence that we can walk this path of obedience. It's only by the renewal that comes through his spirit that we can begin to experience and live in the joy of his salvation. It's only through the empowerment that he gives that we can bear witness to the nations. So we hear this exhortation from Deuteronomy 4, not with an old heart, but with a new one, grounded and rooted in the spirit who dwells in us and enables us to walk in this path that's been charted before us here. Worshiping the one true God and bearing witness to him. May we do that in a renewed way in this week ahead. Amen.